Hi everybody and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne and that is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm exceptional. Um, I've gotten more than, uh, I've gotten $20,000 more on my condo sale than I expected and I'm moving out into the weird lunar Martian desert of Nevada, which is where I love and overlooking Lake Mead, I'm near the Colorado River, and I'm, I'm very grateful. I, I think this is, I, I feel like I'm in the groove now. You know, you can't make the groove. I, I think that is a, a problem in life. Don't you agree? You can't make your groove, but you can, when you're in the groove, follow it. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. I've been thinking about alternative pathways of, neurological activity with the way that my own brain works and I think that you can I, well I think you can make choices on which paths you want to tread which uh, you know little ruts you want to dig and then let things let the runoff flow into that basically but I dig what you're laying down it's not really a control thing it's more just uh, patterns and and uh, focus that's the most important thing I think well play to the karma you know it's like I mean I, I don't know I mean my thing when I was younger was like I could go out and uh, I just always found someone to throw a ball to or or, or hit in the head with right. you know you know mm -hmm. And it, it becomes harder and harder to do that. But, you know, we used to play, you know, three flies up, you know, someone was the batter, someone was the, the catcher. And and you just, karmically, you just groove to who is wanting to, to play mm -hmm. at any given time. And I think that is a lot harder in this weird, you know, insular world of, of online living and everyone just playing video games that, you know, so they don't know. I mean, I've got a good friend who's um, 15 year old son is in a band and he's never played with the actual band. They'd never been in a garage, a stinky, hot garage, you know, in Oklahoma or Nevada or wherever, you know. They've never, like, actually smelled their damp, wet T-shirts thrashing bad music out. They're, they're online, mm -hmm. you know? And it, it's kind of like, well, I'm sorry about that because I got a chance to smell some people climbing up trees and running from cops and jumping on, you know? I mean, we used to, you know, surf buses, you mm -hmm. know? That's not a good idea. I'm not recommending that idea. That you surf uh, an AC transit bus. Uh, but yet, I, I do have to say, <laughs> I'm very glad I did that. And I think that we have a world now where people are so online and insulated and masked and uh, disconnected from each other that it's very hard to get that sweat and vibe and thrash. I mean, can you really imagine listening to a drummer? A drummer 
without the thrash and a little bit of like stink, mm-hmm. you know? No, I, I just can't believe that. You know, I, I, I just don't buy that. <laughs> I believe a really cool drummer my age, you know, in a New York really great bar, you know, like the zinc bar used to be. Uh, but I don't believe that like a teenager can learn how to play the drums without some thrash and a little bit of B.O., you know? I just don't believe my it. My buddy Eric and I used to, every day after school, we used to go to his garage, and I would plug in my guitar, and we w- and he would plug in his bass, and we would rotate with his little brother's uh, drum kit, which I think cost $250 for the whole kit, and we would work on songs. And that's all you really could do, because we didn't have cell phones and we didn't play video games so we just worked on music and it's been a long time since i've played music but if i ever did again i'd definitely want to do it with other people i know like you said a lot of stuff now gets made in people's houses in their studios and they you know send files to other people and people you know play their part over that file and um you know i guess if the production's good enough maybe i can't tell the difference but maybe i can maybe i can tell the difference and i'm just kind of um this this reminds me of something and we will get to our regularly scheduled program but what chris is talking about reminded me of something which is a current trend where you can go to a, a program a website that contains an ai online and you can type in uh you know any any phrase that you want to and then you can pick an art style and the AI will generate a piece of art based on the words that you typed in. And people post these things because they they're they're posting um, they're posting like their book titles or their names or funny phrases. But what's interesting about the art that comes out of it is that every single piece that I've seen looks like dog shit. And, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and I just, you know, there's something, there's, there's yeah. something to this, uh, whether it's music or art or film or books or whatever, it's the, there's that great Jorge Luis Borges story about the king who wants a map of his territory. And over the course of the story, the map becomes so detailed that it becomes the territory itself and i think that's where we are with a lot of art right now it's a lot of map that has become the territory cybernetic i think is the word for it cybernetic art and uh anyway i want i want that stink that stuff that's recorded on a four track and you know feels like there's people who made it because i don't think ai is ever going to uh, even approximate human art and I think that that goes for people using technology as well I hope I hope that's true I, I, I have a lot of I have a lot more faith in AI than a lot of people would give me credit for uh, because they might think I'm completely anti this whole movement um, and I'm not but on the other hand, I don't think that anything can... 
I mean, I always go back to a, a strange moment of my uh, advertising agency was in a really rough area of Melbourne, and but it was a cool area, of course, because we were cool, mm -hmm. you know, and and it's also a place we could afford. Um, and I, I had to go out and, and just check on some comic book reference for this campaign we were running. And I had left Seattle. You know, I, I really had left that all behind. And uh, I was in another hemisphere. And I stepped over an actual, uh, what turned out to be a dead body. Uh, I, I've had a couple of these incidents in my life. I, I reported a dead body here in Las Vegas, which some people who follow my Facebook page would know about. And, you know, everyone else was going, oh, he's just unconscious. And I took, I took his pulse, three pulses, and I thought, no, no, he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, but there was a guy who was dead in the, in the doorway uh, of, of this comic book store. But what I heard coming out and playing within the comic store was uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit. And uh, I didn't know they were from Seattle at the time. I, I, that was the first time I'd ever heard that song. But I instantly thought, well, this is, this is like major rock still living. You know, this is like, these people actually believe in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And even if the movement is dead, I don't care. I, I, I hear this song. And then I realized, you know, the whole grunge movement of Seattle, which I, you know, just missed, really just missed, which is hard to do, you know. I mean, that only happens a few times when you really have just left the town when it really, you know, starts to burn alive. That's a that's a really interesting experience, especially if you're a skydiver. You know, you think, well, Jesus, I jumped out of that plane just before it really, you mm -hmm. know, got registered on the radar, uh, let alone exploded. Uh, so I, I think this thing of like where the action is today is very hard to find and that when it hits you or when it did hit you ever in your life you were just pummeled by it you know I mean it, it felt like a rubber bullet you know, I don't know if anyone's ever been hit by a rubber bullet. It's actually kind of exciting. It's erotic, actually, in my view. I, I know that's a little bit too much information, but um, it, it feels good in a kind of a weird way because it really wakes you up. And you think, oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> there, is a, there is a real world out there, and I just got hit in my left nipple by it, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, um, I don't have anything in the way of announcements. It's all pretty much the same as the last episode, which I'm sure everybody listening to this has already heard. Um, I do have my scenarios, my elephant in the room scenarios from last week. So I thought I could go over those before receiving my new creative challenge. I have my words. I have my five words to choose two, which I will be attempting to slip into the conversation unbeknownst to you. Or maybe, just maybe, I already have. I haven't. Just so you know. that's, that's the only hint you'll ever get on this show. But would you like to hear my three scenarios, Chris, for an elephant in the room? 
I would, David, because I think this is a really good um, and, and very difficult challenge. I, I do. And uh, I want to encourage people to listen to these challenges and to listen to how David is responding. You know, one response is not the only response, but these are part of a world teaching mechanism that I'm trying to put forward that I think really do help spur the mind. And we all have to spur each other on. If you just let people natter on about what their day is like, you're, you're complicit in a mediocrity of existence. You have to challenge smart people to lift their game, to be weirder and more lateral than they might be otherwise. And I really, really, on the in very practical terms, I encourage you to review the Paris Review, you know, journal, literary magazine, interview series, where those interviews are all you really need to know about literature and, and, and cultural theory and, and so much of life. But it comes out of a dialogue of someone posing questions and posing problems so I really appreciate David being open to being, you know, it's, it's a kind of combat. It, it is. It, it's like sparring. Mm-hmm. And there's no harm in that. There's no, you know, hit to the head that's going to debilitate him forever. It's a challenge of intellect and, and imagination. And if you do this in your own practice, your own life, this is well beyond, you know, you know, mindfulness and and yoga mat sort of uh, nonsense. This is this is challenging. This is martial arts for the mind. So, David, hit us up with your response to the last challenge, which I will remind people briefly is, he was asked to create a scenario where there is an elephant in the room. In other words, an invisible giant thing that is really the focus of the whole situation. And yet he can't mention that because that's what the elephant in the room means. And this is a big narrative idea in media and in the arts and in our own personal lives. We all sit around our holiday tables with families. I I, I challenge anyone who's been sitting around a holiday table or will soon around, you know, with families and, I think there are probably a fair few elephants in the room. So this was J- David's challenge to create a scenario, uh, whether it be a narrative, a media idea, a personal scenario or whatever, um, where we have a sense that there's something that is really dominating the situation and yet he can't put a name to it. So there you go, David. All right. So, for the first scenario, we travel 30 years into the future. The World Economic Forum has implemented its plan to rid the world of industrial agriculture. We now pretty much survive on tofu and bugs and plants and vegetables and things that we're not breathing. So, we have a young man who has prepared a nice vegan uh, dinner for Thanksgiving. 
that he's bringing to his father's doomsday bunker in the Nevada desert. And he, br he brings the vegan dinner down a flight of steps and they eat it. And the entire time that he's hanging out with his dad, he's trying not to mention the locked door out beyond the sunset swimming pool, 30 feet underground, that has knocks and scratches coming from behind it. The second scenario, there is a hunter in the woods. He has taken his brother-in-law out hunting. They're looking for deer. And while they're out, they are discussing the hunter's sister. And, <laughs> and the hunter tells his brother-in-law that he's glad that he could take him out there because this was always his sister's <laughs> favorite place to hunt. A half-drunk flask of Kentucky Deluxe is burning a hole in the brother-in-law's pocket. The third one, we're at a high school. They'd just gotten back from a long break. The bell rings, people take their seats. The teacher doesn't really know what to say. So he sits there for a solid two minutes. The room is completely silent. You could hear a pin drop. And a student who's very fond of smoking copious amounts of synthetic marijuana arrives late. And when he opens that door, everyone in the classroom takes shelter underneath their desks. So those are my three. Well, I think we should encourage all listeners to respond to our email address, thebutterflyinyourmouth at gmail.com. I think we need to start grading. You know, as a professional educator, that's one of my many hats, uh, and I'm, I'm a little bit wary of wearing that hat anymore. Um, we are all about the abandonment of standards, the abandonment of, of any protocols of, of evaluation and assessment, because we don't want people to fail. We want everyone to succeed, everyone to get a finisher's t-shirt. Uh, we are destroying uh, an entire generation of young people, and we're destroying uh, willfully uh, under the name of, of critical race theory and some other programs of you know, <laughs> apparent progressivism. Uh, we're destroying an entire generation of immediate people of color, students, and I think what we need to do is fight back and say, look, yeah, we do actually want some standards. We do want some evaluation and we do want some assessment. And I think what, what I've always admired about David is he's willing to be challenged and, and confronted. You know, it's like it, life is combat. I'm, I'm sorry to say, you know, I, I hope I'm not the first person to tell anyone that it, it, it is a it's a struggle. Mm -hmm. So you have to get some feedback, you have to get some fight back, and you have to get some pushback. As long as it's, you know, relevant and interesting, we welcome it. And I think that 
Uh, David has been very brave. You know, only the brave and the innocent survive. Someone told me that a long time ago. I'm definitely not I think innocent. That's really so something. Got to be something. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I think that's exactly right. You know, it's you know, you got to choose. You know, only <laughs> no one else survives. Yeah. I mean, who else is going to survive? Really, you know, the righteous? No, I don't think the righteous are going to survive because I don't believe that. Well, one th- and, and who believes well, that? Yeah. You well, know? one one thing about the writing community that I won't harp on for too long, but one thing that I have attempted to convey to people who have thought me to be negative or curmudgeonly when I do things like critique books by everybody's best friend um, is that I just want to compete. I want writing to be a competition and I want to know when I've been outwritten, when someone has genuinely done a better job than, than the work that I've done. And I'm, that's because you have some balls right, but I, and some heart. Yeah, because I'm not the best, right? I'm not the best yet. I'm not the best yet. It's a key word. But I want to be the best. I have that kind of uh, drive. <clears throat> and I don't think that I can get there unless, unless I know who my, I know what my competition really is. And uh, people in the writing world just never really vibed with that. They wanted to sing Kumbaya and, you know, say that everything was great. And so people would clutch their pearls and gasp in in horror when I would say, hey, you know, I don't think this is really any good. But that's the environment that I want to be in. That's, That's what I think would make literature thrive. If we had some beefs, right? If I said, hey, I think your book fucking sucks. And then somebody said, well, I think your book fucking slit. Like, let's go. Let's hash it out. All this, what's all this, you know, end of the world. We all, we all have to hug each other nonsense. That's not how you actually show love. Not to me, anyway. Well, I think in the new year, uh, we, should, we should probably start naming names. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a little bit reluctant to do this before Christmas because I think they might get lost in the shuffle. Yeah. But I, I, I actually think that it is time to, uh, to name some names yeah. uh, about people who are egregiously sycophantic and sucking up on the liberal progressive program that they, you know, kind of like, you know, it's weird. It's like if you actually have ever hitched a ride on trains, you know how fucking dangerous it is, you know? It, 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 it really takes some skill, and it takes a lot of timing, you know? And there are, there are a bunch of people who are kind of doing this metaphorically because they really don't have any other choice. And they're not actually having to, uh, to chase the train, to get on board. Uh, they're kind of already on board, and they don't want to acknowledge that they are on board and that they're already privileged. Uh, they just want to defend a position of, well, you know, I'm a righteous, woke person, you know, and, and we both know a bunch of these people. And, you know, in a way, I don't even think it's worth taking shots at them because I think they're, they're not interesting enough artists uh, or minds or thinkers for me to worry about too much. But on, in, on the other hand, in the new year, um, 
Well, I, I, I think it might be nice to do a little bit of rifle sniping, you know, at a few people who are just egregiously yeah. uh, just manipulating a stupid program that is going to go down in flames in the midterm elections and certainly in the federal election coming up in 2024. And they're all going to be running for cover. And I, I kind of want to maybe take a few snipes at them when they're still out in the open because they're not really smart about camouflage, mm-hmm. you know? They're, they're really not. They're stupid. Mm-hmm. They're just stupid people. And maybe maybe we might just take a few delicate snipes at a distance, uh, telescopic range, give them, the, give them the benefit of the doubt, you know? <laughs> Uh, they're all well-meaning people, I'm sure. You know, I know. I know a couple of them are very well-meaning people. Nevertheless, I like rabbits and jackrabbits too. You know, that doesn't make me think I don't want to, like, maybe have one of them in my sights. Right. Yeah. So, no, I agree with you. I agree with you. And I think that that's a good segue into the, our week in doom. I have a couple of uh, well, it would be funny if it if it was funny, I guess. But Bloomberg had an article recently that was giving tips on how to survive inflation, and the headline. Oh, tell me! I just went to the supermarket. I, I'd love some tips about why my groceries don't cost you know a little bit less. Tell me. Well, their major tip. I guess I should say the focal point of this of this particular article is you might just try spending your paycheck as fast as you can. That's, that's, I'm going to go Bloomberg. bang that hooker. Yeah. I'm going to bang that hooker really quickly so I don't have any more food to feed my family. I, I understand that, David. Yeah. And now, and then uh, also the Pfizer CEO has said that uh, due to Omicron uh, being a different variant, I guess, <clears throat> in spite of, you know, the scientists in South Africa who discovered it, saying that it's largely mild, and besides it having not killed anybody, Pfizer CEO is uh, laying the groundwork for a fourth booster shot, if that's what you want, which was backed up by... Well, Dr. Fauci backed up a, a just the concept of the booster shot in general. Although, while he was on, he was on MSNBC talking about the booster shot, he said that he didn't really know that you know the third booster shot might make the mrna vaccine more stable whatever that means he was really focused on this word of stability which as you and i do we focus on the words that are being used and i think that the lizard people in control are good at knowing what people want and they're good at knowing how to manipulate language to meet people with where they are to get there to line their pockets well i put my whole retirement fund into Pfizer, and i want to see more of this all the time because this is going to be good for my bottom line yep pretty much pretty much so those two things struck me as particularly weak in doomish um yeah, that's that's pretty much. I, I didn't want to spend too much time because we have you know the whole week in doom episode, 
Um, so I wanted to keep that relatively short. I wanted to make sure that we actually got back to where we were two episodes ago just to kind of round that out. So, Chris, did you want to sort of uh, – it's funny how we do these episodes, but did you have thoughts that you wanted to finish from, from that episode? Well, the one thing I want to say about the uh, Week in Doom is I, I think that um, the whole uh, Juicy Smollett uh, case, which is – that's what David Chappelle – uh, you know, ran this down as a, a long time ago, three, two specials ago, <laughs> two multi-million dollar specials ago, he saw through this whole thing and we're now just seeing it. And the liberal media is running for cover because, of course, everyone just said, well, this is a hate crime and this is uh, mega, uh, you know, mega, uh -huh. you know, and this is, uh, you know, let's get, you know, let's get Donald, you know, and really, you know, what it was, was a particularly vain, pathetic individual using the media to propagate a, na you know, a real narrative of complete distortion and ridiculousness. And now everyone finds it a little bit hard to find cover after it. I mean, including our president and vice president. And I think this is what's really important. This is not just CNN and MSNBC being sucked into a, a narrative. No, Joe Biden mm -hmm. and Kamala Harris all, both bought into this without question. And, you know, David, I love you very much. And I really believe in you totally. But if you ever said to me <laughs> something that, you know, you had been attacked by aliens or whatever, I, I, I would just, I would say, look, we need to have a late night conversation about this off mic. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't just buy it. I wouldn't even buy it from you. And I believe you more than I believe in anyone. Mm -hmm. And I can't believe that we have allowed this much media attention to a complete falsehood in the midst of so many falsehoods that are circulating. We're talking, you know, fake news has become, this is what's turning young people off of voting. I don't like that. I want young people voting to the max, you know? Right. I want young Gus out there voting the moment he gets a chance. Well, well and you know? it's also the, the Jesse. Is it Smollett? Is it really pronounced that way? I didn't know that. I'd only ever read it. Oh, who knows? I'd only ever read it. Who knows? I think that this story small. Yeah, I think that this story is uh, running cover for the uh, Ghislaine Maxwell trial that is getting very little media coverage as well. And uh, just another little tiny weekend doomism. The Atlantic ran an article about why uh, Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein are not indicative of the wider picture of sex trafficking, which is true. A lot of sex trafficking happens because uh, people are addicted to meth and they sell their children. As horrific as that is to conceive, that's, that's the truth of it. However, these things do exist, and it was not unnoticed that uh, the Atlantic, sort of drawing fire away from Ghislaine Maxwell... The Atlantic is owned by Steve Jobs' ex-wife, who was kind of gal pals with Maxwell. They took a lot of vacations together. 
So there you have mm. it. Well, you know, all these things are related. I mean, we have a whole... I mean, I live in the most diverse community you could possibly imagine. I don't see how it could be more diverse. Um, but I'm not going to yield that, that Black Lives Matter is about uh, police infringements. I think it's about the fact that the Hispanic Latino community is now the largest minority in America and the black population is losing traction and needs to get a hold of white guilt and monetize it before it slips away. I think you said the word right there. You know, I, I think really you said believe the word that. Monetize and I think that um, you know most people's involvement with Black Lives Matter uh, might come from a place of feeling like they're choosing kindness, which you and I have talked about a lot. But at the end of the day, it is a naked grift. There, it couldn't be more clear to me that the whole thing is just a lie. <laughs> it's just there to make a few people a lot of money. Same as most things. Well, I'm involved in a class action lawsuit. I, I believed in them fully when they first started when they were in that transitional period between a bumper sticker slogan and a real movement. And I, I know I've experienced movement. I'm from Berkeley and Oakland. Uh, I know that movements do, you know, have really difficulty, you know, launching themselves in the world. I saw that Occupy Wall Street had failed because it didn't reach a movement sort of status. And I invested money in Black Lives Matter and I really believed in it. And I, I absolutely resist any attack on my intentions uh, because I was, you know, fully on board. I got attacked at a at a a riot event in Las Vegas, but I've since been made aware on multiple levels that my financial contribution has been abused in a very fraudulent way. And this is not news. This is not news. You know, there are many groups. I mean, there are many charities around the world. I'm not pointing a special finger at Black Lives Matter, but I am saying uh, I, I'm involved with a lawyer and, and 2,000 people uh, about criticizing their management of their funds. I'm not saying they're special. Again, I'm not. There are many groups that try to rise to the level of having cultural impact uh, but nevertheless, uh, I, I know, I also know frauds when I see them, and I'm also going to be part of a lawsuit against them. Uh, you know, that's my right, and I, I believed in them, and I think also they're they're total criminals, uh, and and that is the, what the nature of the, what the lawsuit says. They're total criminals. Yeah, I agree with that. I just realized that we are halfway through the episode. And I need my creative challenge. <laughs> okay, well, here cool. you go. Go for it. One of the most important things that we've lost in uh, the sciences is the ability to design experiments. The ability to create experiment scenarios to investigate and prosecute and interrogate a theory is something that is almost entirely gone now uh, entirely gone and we have to resuscitate that so the idea here is I want you to develop quickly an experiment 
an experiment that could be validated in some quantitative way that shows how young people exposed to today's social media, I'm only going to focus on social media, how that reflects on attention span, critical thinking, and the ability to launch creative discourse. What would you do? How would you actually validate? We all know this is true. We all know this is true. But how would you do it? What experimental, experiential sort of framework would you put on something to give sociologists, psychologists, and perhaps even harder scientists um, a bit of groundwork to to get that framework in order? And this is is that clear? It is clear. Uh, and this is for the effect of social media on attention spans and ability to engage in discourse. I heard that correctly. Correct. You just said it beautifully. Okay. Yep. Got it. So with that, all right, I got that down. And now I'm running on two tracks, which is cool. It's where we're supposed to be. Um, let's link back up with that, that episode two episodes ago. Um, and with where we were talking about uh, language, you had mentioned a quote from Emerson. Um, mm -hmm. The Emerson quote is that the corruption of man is followed by the corruption of language. You believe that the reverse of that is true. I'm on board with that. I think that's, I think that's accurate, especially from the perspective of corruption in terms of, of noise to signal ratio. Um, and, which is the way I'd like to think about yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And then uh, you brought up Clive James, one of uh, three Australian thinkers that you had mentioned, along with Jermaine Greer. And unfortunately, the third one's slipping my mind right now. But Robert, Robert Hughes, Hughes. Robert Hughes. Yeah. Uh, you have this quote, uh, Art, and especially writing, has become the communications arm of an increasingly murky notion of the civil rights movement. A strange inversion occurs and will become more prominent as literature becomes more synonymous with social justice the notion of social justice will become both more rigid and more confused that panned out over the after ugh, over the following 30 years i think it's fair to say um and you brought up a really interesting point about uh, hyper progressive people utilizing the intellectual property of the past whilst simultaneously attempting to erase its more negative aspects. This idea of um, picking and choosing the things that you want to be able to use to make your life easier without reckoning with the, the hard stuff. It reminds me, as most things do, of Ursula K. Le Guin's story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, which I'm sure you're, I'm mm. sure you're familiar with. Um, that for Yes, what a wonderful story. For oh. people who have not heard this story, who are listening to this podcast, I encourage you to check it out. It's available online if you type it into Google. The idea is that there is a city called Omelas in which everybody who lives there is prosperous and happy and healthy. And the secret to the city is that it runs on the pain of one child who is locked away in a dank, dark dungeon. And so there are people who choose to completely ignore 
the battery that powers this city, and there are others who, without any other option, choose to walk away, who would rather not live in an environment that is, uh, that's run on misery, right? And what Chris said two episodes ago is that, you know, and I agree with him on this, is that we would respect people who actually took the initiative to go, I don't know, live in the woods without an iPhone and uh, go the John Zerzan route, right? This kind of anarcho-primitivism of, of, you know, living maybe not the way people did in the past exactly, but living without technology, living without the niceties of the, of the present. Or people who are able to live with the tainted history, people who are able to not just live with it, but to learn it and to understand it and to be reminded of it, say, oh, I don't know, with statues. So that's where we left off. And it's a very, uh, it's a very compelling point. It's very interesting to me, but you had more to say on this. And so I want to turn it over to you and say, where do we go from here? Well, I think that the first thing that we do is acknowledge that um, the entire revisionist history program that the progressives, uh, and this is really where I, I depart from the, you know, the liberal so-called Democratic Party. I've been a, a Democrat my whole life, and I just can't, I just can't stomach uh, what they're putting forward in terms of uh, curricula for, for schools, in, on, on many levels, I think it's just nonsense. But I think that what we could do is look at where does this idea of corrective memory come from? And I think it comes from uh, cultural amnesia, which we know is a, is a real fact. This is being documented by psychologists and sociologists every day. We know that people are losing track of the 24-7 news cycle. They're losing track of, of what they actually ate uh, two days ago, and it's now moving forward to 24 hours ago. Uh, we're, we're having a problem with cognitive function, you know? Cognitive function on the level of 18-year-olds. And David, you're 34, I think. Uh, that's a little bit... <laughs> Okay, there you go. Well, look at. Oh, I'm sorry I missed that. Well, you know, that's, you know, you always miss the people you love the most. Uh, Sorry to interrupt. Please continue. You're on a roll. But you know what I mean? What we're looking at is um, a crisis of, of consciousness, you know, that is really effective across the board. We're losing cognitive function in the real people. And if you look at the whole thing in terms of, well, what do we have stored in terms of databases and silicon you know, driven technology? What, what of our culture do we have based there versus what do we have based in, in live brain you know, stuff? We've got a live brain problem we have a live brain problem in terms of technology. If that's what our new, mo- you know, the new mantra rubric is, is like technology. Okay, 
Well, there's a mix of things. But our live wet brain problem is great. We are losing substance. We are losing connection. We are losing effective cognition. And this is really diabolical. I mean, because what's the point of our whole civilization if we don't have that? So that's, that's starter number one. But why are we doing that? Why is this happening? And I have a couple of ideas about this. I think that first of all, uh, Guy Debord wrote a great book about spectacle and society, which has a political bent, but I still think it's worth looking at again. Um, the growth of spectacle society, uh, commercialization of the freak show. This is what I would add to it. I think that we have not denied the freak show and the donkey show. I, I, I don't know if people know what the donkey show means, but it's a, a gross sexual act that was supposedly perpetrated in Tijuana bars for the benefit of U.S. Navy people. Um, and it's pretty much not true. But on the other hand, <laughs> on the other hand, I love the other hand. I love my third hand. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think that one of the things that Dave and I want to encourage is uh, third-handedness. Uh, because third-handedness is where all the action really starts. You know, we are in the midst of a freak show, donkey show culture that masks itself with wokeness and a lot of uh, really ridiculously, you know, politically collect, you know, correct tropes. And honestly, shouldn't tropes take two or three hundred years to form? I, 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 that was my idea. Why do tropes get formed within days? <laughs> now, I, I have a little bit of a problem with that. But, you know, we've moved from the idea of the power of symbolism to the emoji, you know? I mean, I didn't yield that up myself. And I, I don't think any intelligent person has yielded that up on, on their own. I think that's a real degradation of culture and a degradation of what David and I call the ghost radio signal. And, and what, what it means is you propagate a signal out wider and wider and wider so you expect a certain level of distortion and you just wear that, you know? You think, well, that's okay. Uh, but as long as we reach more people. Uh, and yet, what about going back to the signal source? And this is, I think, what Dave and I are, are going to try to prosecute in the new year because this is a really radical idea in anthropology terms of breaking back to the original signal of what culture meant and how it has been so gravely distorted and degraded in our time. 
you you use the term the profane shamanization of celebrity and the media and i think that that it essentially gets to the heart of well, everything that you're saying with the move from symbol to emoji it almost seems to be an accelerationism of the symbolic in a way to the point that it no longer means anything anymore and when you couple that with a culture that has externalized memory and thinking to hard drives you end up with people who aren't really in touch with their souls anymore with their ghosts um to use a term from a from a movie that i watched recently well you know everybody knows ghosts but in in this movie the ghost is basically the soul right so i think that um you had some prescriptions for this also that i thought were quite good so if you wouldn't mind going into those i think our listeners would like to hear it well i like that that your focus on the accelerant idea i i, I watched um the 1980s movie uh, Body Heat, in which Mickey Rourke is the uh, arsonist uh, figure. Uh, I really think that was one of his finest moments. And uh, I really like Mickey Rourke. I, I, I regret what's happened to him in life because I think he was a tremendous talent. But the idea of an accelerant, you know, just how do you start a fire and really blow it up you know and I think that is worth thinking about um, and it's also worth thinking about well how, how you you counter it how, how you deal with it um, so I, I have a few ideas I, I think the first thought is that we need to begin with a serious uh, de-accelerant process regarding the media I mean, I think that even if we don't dabble, I mean, I, I, I actually teach media studies still, so I feel obligated to uh, dabble in all of the major network stories every day, mm -hmm. uh, which I don't recommend for sanity's sake. I don't recommend that. Um, I, I, I do, and Dave and I have stood forward as recommending checking out world media, you know, beginning with the BBC, other European entities, uh, places in Asia, the South Pacific, whatever, you know, South America is very interesting to sort of see what they're saying, even if you, you know, don't speak Spanish. Uh, it, it's worth checking out the world idea of media and not letting American media frame your whole reference. So that's number one. Deaccelerate that process. Uh, the other thing is that if, if you've ever been taught how to put out major fires, uh, you know the first thing is recognize the short environment because that's where the fire can only go. It can only go in the room that you're in, you know, whatever room, however, whatever size it is, you know, it's really focused. It's a beautiful discipline. And I recommend people, who, even if they haven't done paramedic or fire training, uh, to think about that. 
think about the media environment that you're in and think about that also in terms of your head, your personal brain. How much is this story going to explode in your brain and just drive you nuts? You know, uh, you know, there is that. So what do you do? Well, okay. You think in terms of blankets, thermo blankets, and those are mostly ideas for most of us, unless we, you know, <laughs> unless you're, unless you're me. Uh, I have thermo blankets in my closet because I'm insane, but that was also because I, that was how I was trained. You know, um, I was trained that way when I was 21, and it was, you know, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to listen to those people. They're older and wiser than I am. Uh, but even if you don't have that thinking or that neurosis, think about, well, okay, what is my protection against the outside environment? And when that goes overboard. But the other thing that's really cool about this is that you also think about, well, what is my deal? Are all my systems good? You know, when I when I light up some pasta, I reheat some pasta, is my stove good? You know, are, are all my connections good? Am I meeting my standards for the neighborhood? And I am I at putting anyone at risk because of my behavior? And this is exactly what is missing in today's society. It's like the self-responsibility thing of like, well, wow, what if I, what if my, you know, hot water heater, you know, broke a gasket and just started flooding the downstairs people, you know, do I know how to shut the thing off? You know, we, we all are about victimology. And this is why I've left, not to do a political thing too much, but this is why I've left the Democratic Party because I think it's all about victimology. I'm now an independent. I think that personal responsibility is is so crucial to everything we do. Uh, be a good citizen, be a good lover, be a good partner, be a good business partner. You know, no one can solve that problem for you. You know, you gotta be, you know, in the end. <laughs> You got to be moral, disciplined, and a little bit on the ball, you know. And that's the only thing that anyone needs to learn: moral discipline and on the ball. There we go. And I think that moral discipline and t- goes hand in hand with taking responsibility, which is, you know, exactly how it links back to the problems that we have right now. It also orients you in space and in your own body and in your own mind to a lot of the because uh, noticing is the first step right it's, it's not the only step but it's an important step and i think that you know knowing how to fix a water heater for example is a practical way to become uh, you know an animal that is within responsibility to its tribe town family things like that these groups right so I like all of that. I think that's really smart, and I think that that's a good way to bring full circle uh, the issues of language and the forgetting, the selective forgetting of the past that we talked about two episodes ago. 
I have <clears throat> some, before we move into practical tip and dream, I have uh, some preliminary thoughts on my study. Um, it's, it's a, it, well, it's me. Okay. So I'm not, a am not a math guy <laughs> and I'm not a, I'm not a scientist, but I started getting the percolating ideas for, uh, for a research project that if it could get funding would be cool once I fleshed it out. You want to hear it? Just the Pope shit in the woods? He does. I think. Actually, I'm not sure if the Pope shits in the woods. Probably depends on whether or not he... Uh... You know what I mean. <laughs> so this, this study would be called uh, Measuring Schizophrenic Chirality in Its Relation to the Discourse. And... Oh, get down on it. <laughs> oh, 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 get down on it. So for uh, listeners who might not know the concept of chirality, uh, it's from a Greek term uh, for, for mirror images, right? And so a good way to think about chirality is that if you put your hands together, palms facing, uh, your hands mirror each other. They are mostly the same size. Then if you place uh, one of your hands over your hand, turn the other way, and so your palm is on the back of your hand, they're no longer on center. They don't match each other. So chirality is this ability, is, is basically a reflection's inability to perfectly mirror uh, its, its origin state. And what I would want to do is I would want to take two groups of people, maybe more, but for now we'll just say two. Uh, one of them is a group of American teenagers brought up on a diet of social media and the news and, and TikTok and what have you. And the other group is uh, a, a tribe from Papua New Guinea who live way out in the woods, right? And as their subject, we take completely out of their heads schizophrenic people. And we uh, record the schizophrenic people talking about whatever it is that they want to talk about. They have, you know, the CIA is living in their brain. Um, somebody is trying <laughs> to steal their stash from them, this, that and the other and then we would have each group uh compose a paragraph about what they mm. what they just heard and here's the cool part i would also want them to create an artwork based on what they just heard right and the study would be attempting um to measure number one coherence uh but coherence wouldn't be the important part the important part would be that chirality right the ability to follow what the schizophrenic patient was saying and recreate it artistically and linguistically um i think to me would begin to uh to look into things like where these people's uh priorities are basically what we're doing here when you give me these um these challenges because we're seeing if my brain can run on two tracks, if it can do more than one thing at a time. And if there is a, right. a key issue with the social media uh, plugged in matrix of TikTok, Instagram, what have you, uh, I think it really is an inability to walk and chew gum at the same time. So this study 
which obviously needs work and it's just you know something that i came up with in uh, like 15 minutes uh, but this study would be attempting to link um, the the consumption and the non-consumption the connection and, and disconnection to the the global hive mind with an ability to tap into what uh, you know siberian shamans would call people who are touched by the spirit or touched by god so that's what i got i think that's very sound and uh, i hope people realize that uh, you know here's a sincere effort that you know if you've ever uh, tried to uh, teach a subject like calculus, which I'm actually ill-advised to uh, to be teaching, uh, but I have, you know, been forced to do that, um, there are right and wrong answers. You know, this is one of the things about education and life that we we struggle with. That yeah, there are some really right and wrong answers, and that's not the whole story either. Um, but what we've tried to do with with these imaginative challenges, and Dave has been very, very gracious to embrace them, uh, because, you know, the student heart is the, is the heart of all learning for all life. If you're not learning for life, um, well, then you're, you start dying, you know, is honestly the truth. So it, it's a Zen idea. It's a world cultural idea of no one is above learning. And I, I really appreciate how he's embraced these ideas. And I think he's coming back with some really good feedback. And, it, you know, these are just his responses. I, I hope that people listening will think, well, I, I might do something different. Mm -hmm. You know, it, mm -hmm. it, it, it's just a beginning point of view. You know, you set out in a canoe over a swamp, you know, and, and the canoes can go off different directions. It, it isn't a, a prescriptive idea. And David is never prescriptive in his thinking. He's always very open and humble. And I hope that people remember this, that this is what stands the, the test of time over the years, over decades, you know, of real, you know, human life and human degeneration also. It is do we still stay learning? Do we still stay curious? And do we still stay lateral and flexible? You know, flexible. You know, think about Bruce Lee. You know, just just you know, think about his idea. He died very young, but he he had an idea of like a flexibility, and I think we should all try to appreciate just the idea of staying loose and limber and not rigid and calcified and ossified and orthodoxed, you know, and I really appreciate David's uh, contribution to this. But we're trying to demonstrate because our, our whole idea hinges on life and creativity is performance in the world. You know, you, you got to get it up. You got you to gotta be there on time. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's not a racist idea. That's not a, it's like a basic idea. You got to be in time and tune. You got to be there. And once we give ourselves over to being a little bit vulnerable and studentish, 
then we start to open up some other possibilities. And I think there's some really great possibilities coming forward. I've got a whole range of new creative challenges for David, but I hope people are listening to this and seeing what a really fine mind who's not that yet, I mean, you know, like mid-30s now, it's like that's not a teenager, um, how someone is responding to challenges. You can grow too. You can change. You can change your, to change your mind. That is my whole thrust of my new book. How do you do that? To change your fucking mind. Uh, You know, how do you do that? Well, you don't do that easily. And I really appreciate David's uh, just total engagement with this idea. We're going to go through some new stages with some really radical ideas that I think will open up new dimensions for our listeners. Um, and, of course, for David, who's, who's the, the kind of the pilot, the, you know, the monkey pilot like here, you know, flying pilot. off into... I do like monkey. I do yeah. like the image of the monkey pilot. Can I be a gorilla? Can I be a prime? Can I be a... Yeah, monkey? okay. A silverback, you know, like super yeah. alpha, get, gets all the bitches. That's, that's where I'm at. <laughs> well, you've, you've done a great job with this, Thanks. and I think we're on to something really cool, and... Uh, with with you know the textbook of mine coming out in March, we're gonna blow this thing up. But I, I really appreciate people listening to what David and I are doing, and how David has really risen to the occasion. You know that's the thing. Do you actually rise to the occasion? Oh, and this, yeah. Do you actually you know? It's a performance, it's a fight, it's a love affair, it's an engagement with life. You know, there are many ways, you know, violent and, and really positive. But if you're not in it, well, then where are you? What are you, you even doing? You know? What are you even doing? What's the, what's the point? You know, uh, Agamben talks a lot about this since COVID has started, that people want to do the Like, they want to survive. It's this uh, dichotomy, like, between survival and, and, and freedom in actual life, and I brought it up on the show before, but, you know, Agamben uses the term bare life of this idea of, you know, you're just breathing, you're just surviving, or are you actually living, you know? And uh, freedom, I heard it put this way recently on a, on a different show, uh, freedom is the ability to exist without permission, so I, which I liked a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I love that. Yeah, Jesus. Wish I could claim credit for that, but that, that was oh. not me. Um but uh yeah so i think your textbook is going to change the whole game with writing i'm very excited for people to read it and uh on that note you have a practice you have a practical tip for us yeah i do this is uh well it cuts to the heart of a lot of things um we just sort of jump levels you know because i'm hoping people can jump levels with me I, i i want people who are staying fit and active and you know leaping around so i want you to ask yourself this question do you think of yourself first first i said as a discrete organism an organic community 
a hierarchically constructed kind of organic machine or as a personality, a character, an identity, or as a soul. I want you to write down the first thought you have on that front. Mm -hmm. You've given, I've just given you a lot of frameworks to deal with. But, you know, where are you on the spectrum? Where are you on the spectrum? I, I want to know where people are. I want to get my laser radar thing out there. I want to get my infrared night vision goggles and, and see people for who they are. And I think you probably do too. I mean, wh why else? I mean, wh what do you want to do? Do you want to just, you know, talk around people all the time? No, I, I want to. I want to see them like for who they are. I don't want to get their clothes off. I mean, that's kind of uninteresting. You know, I know what they look like probably that way. I don't want to know what they really look like. So, that's my first point. Does anyone want me to repeat those? things but I think it's pretty clear um, I want you to really delineate where you think you are I'm sick of this personal identity wokeism nonsense uh, so I'll say it again do you think of yourself first as a discrete organism an organic community a hierarchically constructed kind of organic machine or as a personality character identity self or as a soul and i know where i sit on that so i want you to think about that because we're going to come back with an exercise next time about where people sit on that that scale you know you have to define that mm -hmm. you know it we're all free and easy and we can build our own burgers and you know, we can we can design our telephone plans to meet our own needs. So, well, why can't you answer that question? I think that's a good question to pose to people. You mm -hmm. know, where are you? Who are you? Right. Who are you really? You know, so we'll get to that. And I, then I have a spectrum of ideas that I'm going to build for the new year about how we create a navigational plan. Uh to get to a better place. And I, I'm excited to uh, say that I'm drawing a lot of um, inspiration from Micronesian uh, navigational techniques. They're one of the key uh, Pacific Island people that I've been involved with. They're great navigators and people who want to look at the Matang idea, which is uh, something that you can check out. Um, but we're going to look at navigating because Dave and I are about helping people and not that we have any great ideas. We're just drawing on some ideas that we've heard about, you know, and we're not, you know, we're, we're lost and, 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 and struggling ourselves. But that's how people find each other is you, you start yelling and clapping in the fog and you start, oh, well, okay. And then I've got a fire here and you've got some stuff here and maybe we can build a community and that's how it all started you know absolutely that's so good so good i've been uh writing down on an index card while you've been talking um i'm 
very excited to hear about the Micronesian navigational technique aspect of it. And the yelling and clapping relates in a way that I won't go too deep into, but it's something that I was actually just writing about. So nice sync there. By the way, I'm a soul. Um, just throw that out there. Uh, I was actually really. Uh, I know you were. I knew you were. I knew. I knew how you'd go down on yeah. that, and I really appreciate that, David. I really do. I know. Um, I, I really appreciate that. You know, you you're very clear. You're a throwdown sort of guy. Mm-hmm. You know, if you know what I mean. It's like, and I really appreciate that. Um, and I like that you saved that for I last think, because I was losing hope as you were going through your list i was like well fuck i'm not any of these and then you said soul mm. and i was pulled back into the into the warm embrace of my truth <laughs> so that was great that was awesome well if i ever get into a death fight with demons i hope you're there i will be <laughs> what else am i gonna do for eternity you know right reincarnate probably right hopefully into something cool um, have you been having any dreams lately? You know, I did. I had a very strange dream about uh, someone we both know, uh, Lydia Yuknovich, yeah. who is a, a wonderful, uh, but I, I, I also think extreme feminist writer that I, I've kind of, I, I know that your uh, personal connections, you know, may link through her in different mm-hmm. ways, mm-hmm. but I, I I've kind of lost touch with her uh, personally, um, but we used to have these uh, sort of joking uh, exchanges about a cream corn wrestling match, uh, which I think was a little bit weird. It's like, does anyone really want to wrestle me in cream corn? I mean, really? I okay. Um, I'll be in that, I guess, if as long as you pay for the cream corn in the shower. But uh, this was kind of a fun thing back when I was a little bit more in touch with her than I am now. And, you know, you, you, you well know how, how, how writer connections just kind of dissolve yeah, over time quietly. Mm-hmm. You know, no, no bad feelings. Just, you know, it's just there wasn't that much in connection. And it's kind of a Facebook thing, maybe, and just kind of dissolves. But anyway, in the dream, uh, I was an impresario of a cream corn thing. And she was one of the stars. Only she was nine foot tall, Mm -hmm. which was a little bit of an issue. And... The other talent that I had on board, and I was kind of like like impresarios of, of all uh, combat matches are, you know, they're always uh, crooked, you know. <laughs> and I, I don't like to think of myself as crooked. It's, it was very hard, because I think of myself as a really honest person. Um, but I had an other... Uh, I had a challenger uh, that I wanted to have win. And it was an enormous vat 
of really ranky, really bad cream corn. I mean, cream corn just doesn't need any more explanation. But this was ranky. This was bad. And it was deep. It was a deep... It was the kind of thing that someone could drown in. And my... Uh, apparent... <laughs> I'm not taking any response. This is a dream, people. I'm not saying anything about my choice. My dream... Uh, ad well, the person I was advocating for or putting forward was Kevin Spacey. <laughs> and it was on for young and old. And they ended up just fighting each other to basically the, uh, well, anaphylactic shock or lack of breath, death, in the cream corn pit. And I, I woke up going, I'm not sure how I feel yeah, about this. Right. Should I make an omelet with, with bacon to recover? Absolutely. Or do I need a nice smoothie, a fruit smoothie yeah. to recover this? But I don't know. But Lydia Yuknovich and Kevin Spacey in a cream corn death match was my dream. I, I, I'm sorry, I apologize for it. I shouldn't, Jung and Freud would say, no, look, you don't need to apologize, but I'm going to anyway. So there we are. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. Well, that'll do it for us today. We'll be back next week. We keep the train running. We're going to have uh, episodes every week. We're going to have our meetup on the 17th. So if you're hearing this, it will be the 15th. So by then I will definitely have a Zoom link for you to come and hang out with us. And on that note, Chris, if you want to send us off, that's all I got for today. We've got some ripper guests coming up. We really do. Um I don't care what you think about David and me, uh, but we actually know some really, really interesting people. And we're going to give them a shot because we've built up a framework now over, you know, over more than a year. And uh, we're going to introduce some really interesting people. So please do stay attention. We appreciate your support. But we're going to deliver on that, you know. Not many people deliver on the promise. That I, that's my big thing in life. I, I, I've lived a lot more life than David, and I have to say, not many people deliver on the promise. We've got some really exciting, interesting guests coming up in the new year. We are building on stuff. David's got a young son growing. I'm moving to a new, whole new world. We've got, it's just fun. It's just.